WAGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be shamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. If you're joining us for the very first time for the next 60 minutes, we'll be together answering questions that you may have concerning God's Word or some challenge in your personal life or family or ministry and you'd like biblical counsel on. Uh, What you do is you pick up the phone and call us. And by God's grace, if we can answer, we will do our very best. The number locally, again, is 525-1859. We have a number of people who listen throughout the country via the internet, and uh, WAGP.net can be heard anywhere in the world, 24 hours a day. Uh, If you have not downloaded our app, we also have a radio app that people often use, or some come to us through TuneIn Radio. In either case, uh, the toll-free number is 877, the call letters, WAGP980. Or if you would like, you can email us here directly into the studio. The email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. And uh, some people call, want to remain uh, private, so to speak, and they'll just dictate their questions. Others like to go on the air live. So however you'd like to give it. Uh, we'll be happy to receive it. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today. It is indeed, Pastor, and um, we've got a number of questions left over from last week, plus some new ones that have come in. All right. And I don't think I've ever seen this one. I didn't even know about this prophecy, but uh, Dave from Detroit, Michigan, uh, writes, how do we as Christians refute the two-stick prophecy used by the Mormons? Well, it's a good question. I don't think we've been asked that one before in the Bible line, but there are a couple of passages that the Mormons love to use, and they use them out of context. Uh, It's kind of odd. I think it's in 1 Nephi, where I know it's somewhere in the Book of Mormon. In the Book of Mormon, there's, I think, 17 books, and one of them is called Nephi. And in 1 Nephi, if I remember correctly, uh, it is in that book where the Book of Mormon makes a very dogmatic statement that the Bible that we have has been corrupted. Uh, And so they argue that there was a need to have a New Testament, which is what they advertise their book as, the Book of Mormon. It's it's another testament uh, because the Bible's been corrupted. And of course, Mormon missionaries, when they come to your door, when push comes to shove, and you begin to show them that there's some clear differences between the Book of Mormon and the Bible, then they are trained to go to a couple of different passages to say, well, look, here's a contradiction in the Bible. Over here it says Judas hung himself. Over here it says he fell headlong and his guts 
popped open and, well, clearly a contradiction. No contradiction at all. And you can listen to my explanation in our series on Acts if that's of interest to you. But that's what they try to tell you, that the Bible has been corrupted and therefore no longer can be trusted. So we're in that time of year. We're celebrating Christmas. And if you read the Book of Mormon, uh, I think it's in the Book of Alma in the Book of Mormon, it says that Jesus was born in Jerusalem. Now, wait a minute. Uh, You know, all those songs that we're going to sing this season will say Bethlehem, and that's where he was born. That's what the prophet Micah said he would come from, from Bethlehem. And that's what the New Testament affirms and records. So, listen, the Book of Mormon and the Bible cannot both be right. And so they try to make you think that. But when they need the Bible, they'll try to use the Bible to their end. And the two-stick prophecy actually is from... Uh, the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. I've turned there, so let me just read to you what they do and how they use this text. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, And you, son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it for Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them for yourself, one to another, into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. Uh, So this is what they refer to as the two-stick prophecy. And there are two sticks that are joined into one, but their argument is that one stick argues for Judah, and they would say, well, for Judah is a reference to to, to the Bible as we have it. Um, and then they say the other stick for Joseph, well, that's a prophecy for the Book of Mormon. And they'll quote, um, you know, in Deuteronomy, and it's repeated and quoted, I think, once in the New Testament uh, in Second Corinthians 13 by the mouth of two or three witnesses, actually more than once. But Paul quotes it, let everything be confirmed. And so they'll say, well, we need two witnesses. We need the witness of the Bible, and we need the witness of the Book of Mormon. And again, you know, how can you trust the witness of the Bible, though, if it's been corrupted? Well, it's been corrupted in parts. It's been corrupted in spots. And I guess they're inspired to spot the spots. And so this obviously is a a good spot. And so they can use it as they choose. Um, And so this is what they use to justify prophetically that the Book of Mormon would be written that you have these two books, the Book of Judah and the Book of Joseph. And of course, you know, their leader. Uh, Joseph Smith, uh, he is the one who supposedly was given the revelation uh, for uh, the Book of Mormon through the uh, angel Moroni. The problem with this is many, many problems. Number one, the term stick here is never used anywhere ever in all of the Bible for Scripture. Now, God has a word for scroll in the Bible that he often uses to describe the Scriptures because, of course, the Bible was originally written in scrolls, but there was never given a word for it stick, ever, never, um, for a reference to the Bible. This word is used uh, in other places in the Bible. If I remember the Hebrew words translated tree, it's translated plank, it's uh, translated wood. Here it's translated stick, but never used in reference to uh, a portion of Scripture. So what is this passage talking about? Well, again, I often tell people you can make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean. And if you take a verse out of context, uh, you pretext that you distort its meaning. 
Uh, an extreme example would be Psalm 14.1. It says, there is no God. But contextually, it says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That gives it an entirely different meaning. And so the two sticks that he's talking about are the two kingdoms. In fact, God will go on to explain that. If you remember, there was a time in Israel's history, the first 120 years when the kingdom was united under its first three kings, Saul, David, and um, Solomon. And they each ruled for 40 years. So for 120 years, it was the United Kingdom. Because of the moral compromise of, of Solomon, who really introduced idolatry into the kingdom, God said he was going to take away the kingdom. But he would wait for the sake of his father, David, until his son came to the throne. So if you remember, Rehoboam stepped up to the throne in 931 BC, and he uh, listened not to the wiser elders in the nation, but he listened to the younger elders who had no experience. And and because of that, he made it harder for the people and the 10 Northern tribes split. They are known as Israel, but they're also called Ephraim after the larger of the 10 tribes that split. And they're also called in places like Zechariah, the house of Joseph. Ephraim, if you remember, was one of Joseph's two boys. And so sometimes one of the tribes for Israel is not called Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, but just Ephraim. So in either case, um, you, you find 10 northern tribes called Ephraim or Joseph or Israel or Israel and Samaria. And then you have two southern tribes uh, named after the larger of the two. The southern kingdom was called Judah. Uh, God uh, said that um, he would judge the northern kingdom if they did not repent. And so there's a number of prophets in the Old Testament who come and preach to them. They don't listen um, because of their idolatry in 722 B.C. God sends down the Assyrians and carries them away. Then God sends prophets to the southern kingdom, to uh, Judah. Uh, they don't listen. And then God, through the Babylonian captivity, carries them away. And so you have these two kingdoms that have been split They've never been reunited, but God says a day is coming when they will be reunited. Then join them for yourself, one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when the sons of your people speak to you saying, will you not declare to us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the stick of Joseph or the uh, Northern kingdom, the 10 tribes, which is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will put them with it with the stick of Judah. That's the two southern tribes and make them one stick and they will be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the sons of Israel among the, from among the nations where they have gone and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king will be their king for all of them and they will no longer be two nations. They will no longer be divided into two kingdoms and they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places and which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they will be my people and I will be their God and my servant David will be king over them. Looking at the Davidic kingdom that second Samuel seven spoke of where Messiah will literally rule from Jerusalem and they will have one 
one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. So when you read the rest of the passage, it's really clear. It's not talking about two books, two scrolls, uh, not to mention that the, the Book of Mormon was on golden plates, not on a not on a scroll. Uh, so for them to equate the word scroll with stick, it's just sheer nonsense. The whole thing, the whole Book of Mormon is sheer nonsense. And any thinking person would see how they abuse this passage and the one that Jesus uses in the New Testament where he says, well, I have sheep, you know, who are not of this fold. And they say, oh, that's the Latter-day Saints. Those are the Mormons. No, he's talking about people who are not Jewish, but who are the Gentile nations of the world as well. But in this passage, he's talking about the divided kingdom being brought together. And if you read, um, really starting back here in chapter 34, 35, 36, and 37, it's all about what God is going to do, not just in Ezekiel's day, but Ezekiel looks down the carters of time to the end of time. Uh, and so in this 37th chapter, we also have the great prophecy of the Valley of Dry Bones. When is all this is going to happen? It's going to happen at the return of Messiah from heaven. Now, God is setting the stage right now. Uh, Jewish people from all over the world are coming back to Israel. Uh, it's not the final gathering, but it is a predecessor and a foreshadowing of what is still going to happen. God is going to bring the Jewish people from all over the world back into the land of Israel. And the 10 tribes are in, are in the two southern tribes are not going to be divided, but they're going to be one people led by one shepherd. How is that going to be possible? Because during the great tribulation period, the Jewish people are going to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Their dry, dead bones are going to have life. They're going to be, in the words of the New Testament, born again. The fulfillment of this prophecy in Ezekiel 37 and of the new covenant, which he also speaks of in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, will be totally fulfilled, and they will be under the lordship of Christ. Um, you know, when you go to Israel today, it's kind of interesting because you meet people, Jewish people, from various countries of the world, and you say, well, now you were raised in the United States, or you were raised in Germany, or you were raised in Poland, or you were raised in North Africa. How is it that you're here now? And it's really fun to have conversations with them. And over and over and over again, as you talk to these people, they'll say, well, I don't know how to explain it, but God brought me here. God, God led me here. God put it in my heart to come to Israel. And it's not by accident because God has already begun the regathering process. But during the time of the great tribulation, it will be finished. And so he's setting the stage for a fulfillment of this prophecy. But don't let the Mormons, through their pretexting of Scripture, distort your thinking about the two-stick prophecy. Great question. I don't think, again, we've ever had that one before. But uh, it's one of the passages, classic passages, that Mormons abuse. Let's go to the next question. All right, we have a question from a couple, Liz and Jacob in Texas. They write, our church is a Bible-believing church, and we've recently been troubled by some decisions they've made. Coming up later this month, they're doing a date night where couples can enter for a grand prize. The prize is a one-hour tour of a local vineyard and champagne and wine tasting afterwards at their bar. We were really troubled by this, given our conviction regarding alcohol— our church also has an active Celebrate Recovery, which we thought was quite troublesome for those believers that struggle with alcohol temptation. We immediately thought of Romans 14. We live in a large college town, and there are plenty of wholesome and fun things to do this time of year. 
We're also troubled by the fact that our church doesn't do a time of invitation at the end. They have a packet for new Christians in the foyer on the way out. We'd very much appreciate your counsel and what our responsibility is as born-again believers when things like this happen. Well, it's kind of sad, but in many ways, it is a commentary in the day in which we live where, you know, Christians, evangelical Christians who historically opposed alcohol for for several reasons. One, you mentioned from Romans 14, it could cause a brother to stumble. And the Bible says you shouldn't do anything that should cause your brother to stumble. Uh, In addition, God says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. And in the day that we live in, with the abuses of alcohol, and it's really operated by an evil industry. Uh, I mean, just think about the seduction, the immorality, the, um, the strategies that they implement in this day. Uh, go to any spring break area of the country, and every major uh, beer distributor will be there uh, getting kids drunk on alcohol. Uh, They don't force it down their mouth, but listen, they push it like no one's business because they want you to become, you know, their customer. And it's really, it's, it's become a, an overtly evil industry and why a Christian would want to support it in any way, shape or form is beyond me. So just for the fact that you can cause a brother to stumble, that uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 says we're to abstain from every appearance of evil and that it really doesn't glorify God in our day, that would be enough for a Christian to say, I'm not going to use alcohol. And many will argue for abstinence on that basis alone. Above and beyond that, uh, God makes a distinction in the Bible between uh, um, drunkenness and the use of strong drink in, in the term wine. The w- term wine, yayin, typically in the Hebrew Old Testament, oinos in the New Testament in Greek, can be used of fermented and unfermented wine. And so it's um, obviously ignorant to say that every time the Bible mentions wine that it's describing uh, non-fermented uh, alcohol, uh, just the juice of the grape. Uh, obviously, any reader who approaches the Bible carefully will know it cannot mean that. When Paul says, don't get drunk with oinos, it's the same word used elsewhere. Uh, it's obviously something that can make you drunk. But the Bible, one, clearly condemns drunkenness. No one's going to debate that. It also condemns the use of strong drink. The exception to that would be to a dying, despondent person, as Proverbs 31 teaches you can give him strong drink. So God's people shouldn't use strong drink. There's an article. I think I'm going to go ahead and post it at searchthescriptures.org. Probably won't be up until after Thanksgiving because my poster is away for a couple of days. But it's an article written by um, John Steen, who was at Princeton Theological Seminary. He was kind of the last uh, conservative holdout. And he wrote an article in 1971 that appeared in Christianity Today called Wine Drinking in the New Testament. In fact, anyone listening to me can Google it. And he does a superb job in defending the distinction between strong drink and non-strong drink. By strong drink, the Bible does not mean... uh, whiskey and vodka and the distilled liquors that come some six or seven centuries after the Bible is completed. It's describing unmixed fermented wine. And he does an excellent job. Dr. Norman Geisler also, who was at Dallas Theological Seminary, Dr. John Walverd, probably the premier 
um, theologian of the 20th century. Both have written extensively on this subject as well. Uh, it's not some backwoods, you know, argument written by a couple of rubes. Uh, these are guys who are, you know, well-schooled in the Word of God, and they've done a super job. But the one by Steen is written on a layman's level without a lot of uh, the technical uh, terminology that you'll find, say, in Norman Geisler's article that appeared, I think, in 1980 in Bibliotheca Sacra. But either of those articles would be excellent to uh, to read. Now, I'll get one of those, and I'll post them at the searchthescriptures.org website. Um, but I think it's very foolish what your church is doing, extremely foolish. Number one, they have a recovery ministry in your church because there are so many Christians, even in our day, who struggle with alcohol. But they're really sending a terrible signal to your young people, to your teenagers, and to new Christians who are coming out of alcohol backgrounds. Uh, just terrible. Uh, I, I, I don't think I could continue in a church like that. But this is what's happening is churches today don't want to be out of sync with the culture. And Christianity today is now out of sync. Uh, they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't uh, publish an article like the one they did in 1971. Uh, Christianity today has gone totally liberal. Uh, in fact, I, I just uh, was listening to um, this station on Saturday evening, and we have Jer Jan Merkel, right, Rick, uh, Saturdays at, what, 6 o'clock? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, and she was uh, referencing a recent article in Christianity Today in October, basically endorsing divination, friendly divination. I mean, the, 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 whole, the whole magazine is, is upside down. Um, but we don't want to be out of sync with the culture. And so, you know, you've got guys like Mark Driscoll, who's a very popular preacher, uh, no seminary education, abuses the word of God at times. Um, and in either case, you know, he's now advocating the use of alcohol and he openly endorses how, you know, he and his wife will have martinis. And, and so, you know, you're up against this kind of thing and pastors don't want anyone to be mad at them. And, you know, and if you talk about using not using wine, well, you're legalistic and you're this and you're that. And, you know, and it's really sad. Now it is true. The Bible does not teach abstinence. It does forbade though the use of strong drink. And it teaches that you can use alcohol for uh, a medicine like Paul indicated with Timothy, uh, not how some people have told me they use it as medicine. Um, but he was telling him, don't take water only. Why? Because it was making him sick. And as a traveling pastor, he needed to add a little wine to the water to kill the bacteria. And again, that's what Steen's article covers. I see you have it here. You're going to post it on my website. Good. Rick's going to put it up there. Wine drinking in New Testament times, Robert Steen uh, from Princeton University. Um, in either case, um, it says we can use it uh, as Jesus illustrated in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, he uses an illustration never with any error in it, but only with truth. So it was an antiseptic. They poured wine on the cuts of the uh, man who was uh, robbed and beaten to kill the bacteria. And then they poured oil over it, kind of a Band-Aid in the first century. So there are uses. You can't say the Bible teaches total abstinence, but uh, in terms of how Christians today are using alcohol, yes, God would say abstain. And so that's sad. Uh, very, very saddened to hear this couple from Texas who's writing us today. Um, and, and I wouldn't want to be raising my children in that kind of a church. 
You know, they bring up another uh, topic as well. I don't know that we've ever addressed it, but uh, there seems to be an increase in uh, churches these days that aren't having the altar call. Um, yeah. And that's their churches experiencing that. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it, it's a fair question. Um, the, the altar call has def- definitely been totally abused um, over the last, you know, four or five decades. And we're people have been manipulated and everything else. And so what ended up happening is a lot of churches have just totally dismissed the altar call. Added to that, you have people who have come forward in churches whose life has not really synced with their coming forward. And because of that, they said, well, the altar call has given people a false assurance. And so let's get rid of it. What is biblical is not necessarily the altar call, Some would argue that the altar call is rather recent in the course of church history in a local assembly. They would say it started with Finney, uh, one of the great revivalists, um, Charles Finney. But I, I, I think what is biblical is very clearly a public confession of faith. And ultimately, that would have shown itself in the first century in baptism. But God has certainly used the altar call. Uh, people come forward sometimes, and I know they're not saved. They may think they're saved, but I know they're not because when I counsel t- with them, sometimes just for a minute's time, it's obvious they don't even understand what the gospel is. And so do you have to understand the gospel to be saved? Yes. Uh, that's a prerequisite to believing um, what God asks you to embrace. So the altar call has been abused, and many times people come down front and they associate that with being saved. When many times when people come down front in a church, all they're doing is taking a step towards God. But I will say this, your church needs some vehicle to identify people's hearts who are open to the Lord, who want to receive Christ or want to become a part of your church. And so the question becomes, how do you do that? What is plainly clear in the Bible is that if a person is saved, they will be unashamed of Christ and they'll be willing to publicly identify. And so even people who are existing Christians, we ask them to publicly join. Why? One, to let the the existing believers know who the new members are. But two, we feel like if they really know the Lord Jesus, they're not ashamed of him. They won't have this mentality, well, this is a private thing for me, my religion. Well, it is private in the sense that only you can make the decision in your heart. But if you've made that decision, Jesus taught that you would openly, publicly confess him before men. And I think, too, in addition, the invitation uh, gives pastors and church leadership an opportunity for ministry in people's lives. Uh, people come down and they say, I want to be baptized. They don't really know why. Maybe they've seen someone else do it and they think it would maybe make them feel better about themselves. And, and again, they're, they're just responding to everything they know how to respond to. And then you end up leading them to Christ. That happens all the time at Community Bible Church. People come down front. I want to be baptized or I want to join the church. And we say, well, to complete the membership process, you will have to have a meeting with the pastor, want myself or one of the other pastors, or you will have to come to a meeting we call meet the pastor. And at either of those venues, we find out if they know and understand and have embraced the gospel based on their own, their own lips, what, what they write down. Um, and so, uh, it's an opportunity many times to lead these people to Christ. I would say on average, 50% of the people who come down front during an invitation 
on any given week at Community Bible Church are lost on a typical week. About half who come down and say, I'm a Christian. I mean, most people who live in America would say I'm a Christian, uh, but they don't yet believe. And so it's really an opportunity, um, especially if there's some specific follow-up that, that comes from it. So anyway, good question. Let's go to the—we have a live caller, Rick, I guess, who's been waiting, so let's we go there. Do indeed. Let's go to the now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Uh, good morning, Dr. Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. Yes. Uh, just recently, I watched on the Inspiration Network uh, that movie they did about Billy Graham's early years, uh, and one of the scenes, I mean, it was coming from Charles Templeton's point of view, but in there it showed Charles Templeton uh, addressing his church in Canada, saying that he his heart was heavy, he couldn't accept uh, a lot of the tenets of the Christian faith, and how he left and took a position at Princeton, and then later on, Billy Graham uh, saying that, we, you know, he didn't want to attack him. He was his friend. He wanted to, you know, pray for him. And then later, Charles Templeton attacking Billy Graham, you know, in person about his faith. Uh, I remember the, the movie based on the book by Lee Strobel, Case for Her Faith, where he actually got a chance to interview Charles Templeton to find out why he left it. My question is, is I know you're talking about carnal Christians, uh, people who are are truly born again, but they have parts of their life where they're carnal. And I know the Bible says that you you will be known by your fruit. Uh, It's a little confusing because you see someone like Charles Templeton, who many thought was going to be the big evangelist and not Billy Graham. Right. And he he turned away from the faith. Uh, He seemed to by all accounts, bear fruit. But then you got someone who's truly saved, but maybe living carnally. I was just wondering if you could speak to that. I know, I know only God knows, truly knows someone's heart, but it's just a little confusing. Well, it's a, it's a good question. I appreciate it. A um, couple overarching principles first. You know, in the Olivet Discourse, which Jesus gives a course on the Mount of Olives, the very mountain that he ascended to heaven from, and the very mountain the Bible says in Zechariah chapter 14 he will return to when he visibly, bodily comes at the second coming at the end of the tribulation period. And uh, in this discourse, he gives a number of the signs that will unfold during those last days before his coming uh, from heaven. And, and then he says um, in Matthew 24 and verse 13, well, in verse 12, he says, because of lawlessness, and remember, sin is lawlessness, First John says, because lawlessness or sin is increased, most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. Uh, this is what the Protestant reformers reference to as perseverance of the saints. You ask the average Christian today what is meant by perseverance of the saints, and they'll say once saved, always saved. And that's one aspect of the doctrine, but that's really not where the reformers put the emphasis. When they spoke of perseverance of the saints, they were arguing that if a person is eternally secure, they will go on, they will persevere. Jesus is not contradicting what he said in other passages in Matthew's gospel or the other gospels or in the Acts when he speaks to Paul about salvation by grace alone through faith alone, um, that perseverance saves you. You're not saved by perseverance, but if you are saved, you will persevere. 
And plainly, the Bible teaches that. Um, John writes in 1 John chapter 2, children, it's the last hour. And we have been in the last hour since the day of Pentecost. It's called elsewhere in the Bible, the last days. With the coming of God, the Holy Spirit, the Bible teaches that since Pentecost, the imminent return of the Lord Jesus is here. In other words, nothing prophetically needs to happen for his to come for his church. There's a lot that has to happen for the second coming to take place. There's nothing that needs to happen for the church to be caught up in any remaining prophecy that has not been fulfilled uh, prior to the rapture will be fulfilled during the time of the great tribulation that will culminate with the second coming of Christ. In either case, there's a lot of prophecy that's being fulfilled in our day. And I believe we're in the last of the last hour or the last of the last days. And so he said, children, it is the last hour. And just as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, that is that one world leader, even now many Antichrists, those who are against the Lord Jesus, have arisen. For this, we know it's the last hour. And by the way, this is what Jesus prophesied in the kingdom parables, that just as he would go out and sow good seed through his church, even so, the spirit of Antichrist through his false teachers, through his false prophets will go out and sow seed as well. In the ultimate uh, harvest time, God will separate the good from the bad. Anyway, he goes on to say, they went out from us. When he says they went out from us, it meant at one time they were, uh, they were a part of us. They were a part of the church, a part of the true church, not saved professing, but not possessing. How do we know? They went out from us, but they were not really of us. They weren't really true believers because or for Gar, if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. In other words, they didn't persevere. These were false teachers. This is what the book of Jude describes. People who come into the church, they look Christian, they smell Christian, they talk Christian, but they're really not Christian. And the best test is time. And so Jude, of course, warns us that people will try to come into local assemblies and to defile local assemblies. Beloved, I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. He says, listen, I, it was in my heart to write, say, another book of Romans. But God changed the directions. You know, God can direct a moving vehicle. He said, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. Um, not for faith, but for the faith. It's articular. That is the body of truth delivered to us through the apostles. We call the New Testament sometimes the faith. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all delivered. God's not still delivering it in a 67th book like the Book of Mormon. God's canon is finished. It was once and for all delivered to the saints. And then he warns certain, un, certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Why do they creep in unnoticed? Because they look Christian. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master in Lord Jesus Christ. That's the day we're living in, more and more and more. Now, with the gentleman that you mentioned, it's a lot easier to discern because he and Dr. Graham both were at a point where the liberal theologians of the day were challenging them concerning the infallibility and the inerrancy of the Bible. And a lot of uh, casework had not yet been done 
on biblical inerrancy. You know, there were passages at that time in the late 40s that we really did not have an explanation for. But the Bible-believing Christian said, though I can't explain it, in faith I accept it. Um, and now, there, I don't think there's any passages like that. You know, sometimes there are things that archaeology has confirmed. For instance, the New Testament uh, teaches that there was a governor in Judea. His name was Pontius Pilate. Uh, the liberal theologians in Princeton and Yale and Harvard said, well, there was no such person. That's a fictitious person. There's no record anywhere. Well, in 1961, in Caesarea Philippi, or not Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea by the Sea, they uncovered a corner of a building, and on it was the name of Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of Judea. And so, um, you know, archaeology has answered a lot of the unanswered questions. But Dr. Graham said, I don't understand it all. But I do know that God is infallible, and he wrote his book infallibly. And this gentleman that you mentioned said, no, I can't accept that. And so why could he not accept it? Probably because he, well, it was very simple. He didn't have a new birth. He just didn't have the ability to receive truth. A natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot appraise them because they're spiritually judged or discerned. And so asking an unsaved, unregenerate person, though he may be Christianized, to really fully, truly embrace the truth of God Almighty is like asking a blind man to evaluate an uh, art recital. It would be like asking a deaf man to judge a music recital. They don't have the equipment to do it. God gives people, by his mercy and grace, enough equipment, enough insight to understand the gospel. But if a man doesn't do anything with it, then God judicially hardens his heart. And so Jesus speaks of such people in Luke 8, a passage that is often abused to teach that you can lose your salvation. And I read it from Luke because Luke alone adds this uh, detail that the other two synoptic gospels do not add from the parable of the sower. And Jesus says, in those on whom the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. These have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in a time of temptation, they fall away. So in the first three soils, if you know the parable of the sower, he's giving reasons why some people do not respond in a saving way to the gospel. He's not describing different kinds of Christians. You know, some say there was a popular book written a couple decades ago called The Man in the Mirror, and I'm sure Pat Morley's intentions were good, but he was not a careful theological exegete, and he took a common fallacy that one particular man introduced and bought into it that the first soil described an unbeliever, and the next two carnal Christians, and the third, a uh, a, a spirit-filled Christian. Now, Jesus is clearly, contextually, saying the first three soils are unbelievers, the last is a believer. And that's the way virtually any Bible commentary or Bible scholar has always taken it through the history of the church. And that and, and that's, makes sense, especially when you put it in Matthew's gospel, because um, 
it is found right after Matthew 12. Dr. Pentecost, who's still alive teaching at Dallas Seminary, I remember having him in one of my classes. I had him in a lot of classes, actually, and said the key to understanding Matthew 13 is to know that it comes after Matthew 12. And that's right, because in Matthew 12, you have the leadership of Israel committing what uh, Jesus described as blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, they, they formally reject Jesus as Lord. And so in light of that, Matthew 13 basically explains, well, because he came to his own and his own received him not, what's the state of the kingdom? What is God going to do with the promises he gave to the nation of Israel? And he doesn't eradicate those promises, but he delays their fulfillment as Matthew 13 describes. And so among other things that the Lord does in that chapter is he describes why they didn't always respond. And so there are some who hear the word with joy. They get excited. They believe for a while, but it's only intellectual, but they do not embrace the truth. So it is true that under the banner of a carnal Christian, a lot of people said, oh, he's a saved person. He's just carnal. Well, not if he's rejected Christ. You can't say, well, he was saved, but now in his carnality, he's apostatized. Clearly, in that kind of scenario, there's no question that person has never been saved because the Bible is crystal clear that if a true salvation route has taken place, while a Christian may be disobedient and out of fellowship with God, he will never renounce Christ. Um, but it is true. A Christian can get out of fellowship and into sin, but if they are a true child of God, they'll be a very unhappy person because the Holy Spirit and their human spirit will be deeply grieved. And two, they will be disciplined, a mark of conversion. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. If you're without discipline, you're illegitimate and not a true child. Good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. Or you can always email us at tbl at wagp.net. From Ellabel, Georgia, Spencer writes, I'm confused about an end times event after the Great Tribulation ushering in our Lord's return. What will be the extent of the damage on earth? The Bible speaks of earthquakes, fire, bloody water, etc. Will all this mess be cleaned up by the church when we return with Christ? Is that what the thousand years of Jesus' reign on earth will be like? Don't get me wrong, that's fine with me as long as I'm with my Lord. Can you help me understand these events? Well, it, it's a good question. You know, it brings to my mind a passage found in um, Daniel chapter 12. And in Daniel 12, um, if you remember, the tribulation is split into two halves, each 1,290 days long, uh, 42 months, 30-day uh, months. And a, and a biblical month is not... Um, 31 days, it's, it's 30 days. And so if you remember, the Jewish people operated off, off of a lunar solar calendar. And so every so many months, they make an adjustment in their calendar, and they have, you know, a double month, and um, it's complicated, but I won't go into it. But it's, it's significant because, um, you know, the Jewish holidays were, or the festivals were centered around this lunar solar calendar. In either case, um, the second half of the tribulation, like the first half, is exactly 1,290 days. And it says, and from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days, Daniel 12, 11. So right in the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist goes into a rebuilt temple. I suspect it will be dedication day. 
because it probably won't be started until after the rapture of the church when the man of peace comes and can allow uh, the contention to be lifted on the Temple Mount and it will be rebuilt. Probably on the day it's dedicated, um, he will do this. But in either case, it will be dead center in the middle of the three and a half years where he will go in and make himself out to be God. And Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, when you see this, this is what Daniel, the prophet, not the historian, but the prophet, he said, spoke of, uh, watch out, because then the worst of the tribulation is going to take place. And then he goes on and he says, how blessed is he? So, so Daniel 12 says, from the time the abomination of desolation, there'll be 1,290 days. Then he says, how blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to 1,335 uh, days? So from the time Messiah returns, there's going to be a period, another period of 30 days. And during this period of time, um, God is going to clean up, or 45 days, uh, God is going to clean up. He is going to judge the nations. He'll remove uh, unbelievers who have survived the tribulation from believers who will stay here. Um, there'll be a cleanup time, but will we be cleaning up the earth? No, because God tells us in Isaiah's prophecy that God will refurbish the earth. Yet it's total destruction. I mean, everything is just ruined. There's virtually nothing left. You know, all, all the things that are green are no longer green. They've been destroyed. I mean, the, the place is a mess. And Jesus warned, unless those days had been cut short, no human being could have survived. So the Lord will refurbish the earth. This is not the final refurbishing. Uh, the final refurbishing is actually a total destruction of the heavens and the earth at the end of the millennium where he creates a new heaven and a new earth. But during the thousand year reign, we will live in a refurbished earth and there'll be a certain um, restoration to what it was like even before the fall so that the baby can play next to the cobra's nest and not be hurt. What the fall brought, the millennial will lift in terms of the structures on the earth. Anyway, good question. So don't worry about it. You won't be cleaning it up. You'll be enjoying it as a, as a Christian. And we'll even get better when the Lord makes the final eternal resting place where the new Jerusalem comes down on a new heaven and a new earth. Amen. Is rededicating your life to Christ in public scriptural, a listener would like to know? Well, yes and no. Uh, for instance, um, there is a biblical principle that is broad as the sin is, so broad should the confession be. And so, for instance, if you read what Jesus said about church discipline, if your brother sins, go and speak to him in private. If he doesn't listen, take two or three. Why? Because by the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything should be confirmed. If he doesn't listen, then take it to the whole church. And if he doesn't listen to the church... Well, then treat him as an unbeliever, a tax collector. He's to be removed from the membership. Well, the reverse is true. The whole goal, ultimately, of church discipline is not to beat people up, but ultimately that they'll repent, that they'll be restored. And so sometimes, you know, people go through the whole process. They're removed from their membership, and they come to their senses, and they come back. And so that certainly should be public right there because the biblical principle is as broad as the sin, so broad should the confession be. And so when someone comes back, they come back admitting publicly that what I did was evil, but I want to be received back into the fellowship. I could give other examples, but that'd be one to suffice. Let's go to this caller. All right, we do have a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Yes. Hey, Dr. Berg, I got a question. Um, this morning I was um, reading in the book of Luke, and um, the passage where Jesus come across the tax collector Levi and asked him to be his disciple and he followed him. 
Well, just a few verses later, they mentioned the 12 disciples, and he's not mentioned. Is there any particular reason why? Um, it's a good question. Um, and Luke's gospel, of course, needs to be brought together with uh, the other synoptics because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are what we call the synoptic gospels. They see through the same eye, so to speak. And when you put them together, then it becomes really clear, you know, all that's being unfolded. So let me just turn to Luke's gospel here for just a second. Were you in Luke chapter three? Is that the text you were in? Hello. I guess they hung up. Sorry, we lost them. Um, so here's the thing. When you, when you read Luke's gospel and you put it together with Mark and Luke, what you discover is that some of the gospels order their um, topics chronologically and others of the gospels um, order their topics in terms of material or themes. And it's really important because sometimes you think, well, over in this gospel, it seemed to happen after this event, when over in this gospel, it happened after this event. And so um, clearly you need to look very carefully what is the style of writing that the particular author is using. Because when you see the style of writing that he's using, then it becomes very clear what his intention is. And so when you open up Luke's gospel, for instance, um, he describes that it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully to the beginning to write it out to you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. And so while you deal with um, one tax collector who's converted and gloriously saved, um, and of course there's a couple of different tax collectors in the New Testament, so you need to make sure, well, are we talking about Matthias, the one who became an apostle? Uh, are we talking about, you know, another tax collector? So be very careful, read it carefully, read around it. If you have a Bible with cross-references, use the cross-references, but no, um, Clearly, we have a man by the name of Levi who is saved, gloriously saved, meets the Lord Jesus in salvation. And you, when you read it in Luke's account, make sure that you put it together with Mark and Luke. If you just go out into the margin, if you have the New American Standard, and you look at the cross-references, you will see the calling of the disciples where he chooses 12 uh, is distinctly different from sometimes the time of the actual conversion. And if you don't look at that carefully, you'll think, well, how is it that, you know, these people are called before they're saved? And, and so God will sort that out for you when you look at the chronology between the two books. Anyway, that's a quick answer. I wish I could spend more time. Let's go to the next one. All right. Uh, 525-1859. If you have a question this morning on the Bible line, Richard from Hilton Head Island would like to know what was Jesus doing during the 40 days after his resurrection? We know he appeared to Mary and Mary Magdalene at the tomb to the two disciples on the Emmaus Road, to the 11 on at least three occasions minus Thomas the first time, and to 500 in Matthew 28. And did he ascend to heaven before what was recorded in Acts 1-9? Um, well, again, in what was he doing? Um, God tells us specifically in Acts 1 
Um, it says, uh, again, Luke, and, and I wish I had that call or I could have asked a follow-up question because there's two different Levi's. So, I, again, I don't know where he was in Luke. But um, Luke also wrote the Acts of the Apostles. And so Luke actually wrote more of the New Testament than any other single writer. You say, I thought Paul did. He wrote the most books. Luke wrote the most material. Luke and Acts together are longer than all of Paul's epistles together, even if you think Paul wrote Hebrews, which he did not. In either case, uh, to these he also presented himself, Acts 1-3, to these he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So you reference some of the events that happened beginning with, you know, Resurrection Sunday, where he meets Mary Magdalene, the other women, Peter and John. Uh, he meets, uh, you know, in the upper room with Thomas missing a week later, the, you know, the Emmaus Road disciples, Peter, all, all those things. And what did he do after those first, you know, eight, nine days? Well, a lot. Because over the course of 40 days, without elaborating on it, he met on several appearances, giving convincing proofs concerning his resurrection and teaching them, instructing them concerning the coming kingdom of God, that kingdom that God had promised to the people of Israel that he needed to know about that we as Gentiles, we will enjoy. All right. Okay, let's... Very good. I guess we do have time for one more uh, Ryan from Boston says, I'm feeling led to go to seminary. I want to go to DTS. That's my number one school. However, what can you tell me about potential other schools such as uh, SBTS, Gordon-Conwell, the Master's Seminary, Talbot Seminary, and Reformed Theological Seminary? Are they all sound schools as well? Um, keep that list up there so I can see it there, Rick. Um, well, certainly the Master's Seminary, that's John MacArthur's Seminary. A lot of Dallas graduates teach there. Uh, it's a good school, excellent school. Reformed Theological Seminary is a good school. It's very reformed in their theology, so it's going to be a thoroughly Calvinistic perspective. But they have the gospel, and if you can sort out those things in your mind, that might be a consideration for you. Uh, Talbot is a good school. It's very small. It's had big years and small years. And um, so with that said, you're going to have a, a limited faculty and those who are able to minister to you. Gordon Conwell, in my judgment, I wouldn't send anyone there. Uh, it, there are some good people at Gordon, and I don't want to dismiss that. There are some good professors there, but it's such a mixed bag of theology. It's just across the board. Um, and it's thoroughly egalitarian in their theology. So there's going to be as many women there who are studying to be pastors of local churches as there are men. Uh, but again, you know, I, I just, I, I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, Southern Seminary, Al Moeller's the president, good school. Um, it's a little different from the other SBC schools in that it is very, very reformed in its theology. So Al Mohler's a five-point Calvinist, and if you can stomach that with a lot of the faculty there that embraces the same thing, uh, then, you know, you go to it, but you'll get a good education. It's a very good education, like Dallas. So uh, those Dallas, if I had to pick the top three here, I'd say Southern, Dallas, or Masters. Those would be my top three choices out of uh, the, the list here that you gave us. Anyway, we're out of time for today. A lot of questions still came in that we didn't get to, but 
there's always another Tuesday should the rapture not take place and God gives us the health to be back. We hope he will, uh, though I'd prefer the rapture <laughs> if that came first. So listen, I hope you have a great day as you walk with Christ in a spirit of thanksgiving. <laughs> 